Welcome to Seat Time, the online show for the off-road enthusiasts, where we beer, drink, and binge race our way through off-road greatness. I'm Brian Pierce, your purveyor of awesome. Guys, I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am for you to listen to this podcast. Craig Martin has worked his entire life in the motorcycle industry, and we are lucky enough to get just a handful of stories he has in our limited time frame. But do not worry. We will chat with Mr. Craig Martin again. Hopefully you didn't miss our latest YouTube video, but if you did, head to the Seat Time YouTube channel and give it a gander. It'll give you some context on how tight and twisty the enduro that Craig and I chat about really was. But if you enjoy this, please consider supporting us. Becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash seattime is a simple way to support us monthly. You can consider buying a t-shirt from us at fpmg.threadless.com, showcasing your love for sexy designs. And if you shop Amazon, head to seattime.co slash support and use the Amazon banner before you shop. Until then, here is Mr. Craig Martin. And as we said, we are here with Mr. Craig Martin. So as we like to do, Mr. Craig Martin, how is your evening going, kind sir? It is going awesome. I'm yeah. just watching a little bit of Gas Monkey and having a Corona. Oh, ooh, a Corona. I like that. So let's talk about this. Is uh, Do you have a beer of choice? Is your Corona a beer of choice? Or is there is that just happen to be in the fridge? Not very exciting guy. I'm a Corona guy and a Corona guy only. And I know that that's not, uh, that's not your taste, but that's where I'm at. I'm a no. I am I am 110% a beer enthusiast. So many people think that I'm a beer snob, and I am not like Mr. Art Pepin up there in the new, in the Northeast. He is a beer snob. He will definitely turn down a beer. Where I, my good sir, would prefer if you wanted to hand me a Corona and you wanted to drink one of those with me, I would be delighted to hand, to take it from your hand and consume it with you while we uh, bench raced and beer drank over uh, a great a great race. Right? I mean, that's the way I look at it. Absolutely. So, uh, though, having said that, I will tell you that I am drinking a double IPA from Pelican Brewing up in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> so, I could definitely say that my uh, my beer drinking, I guess, covers a gamut, maybe? Yeah. That's not a Corona, for sure. <laughs> it is not a Corona. Well, um, so how's your, your how's your Tuesday night going? How's your, uh, are, are you working this week with uh, getting all your fly racing stuff in order, or you've already done that, getting ready for Thanksgiving? Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of one of those weeks where some of my dealers are really kicking up right now and getting all the WPS stuff in line and getting Western Power Sports products in, including fly racing, obviously, for their Friday, you know, madness sales and their saturday small business you know deal and all these different types of days that they're all having um but most of it's pretty well handled at this point i've got a couple dealers i need to see yet this week um some of my bigger guys that i i go to weekly um other than that it's uh smooth sailing i got some family in town and getting ready to eat some turkey here on thursday oh my gosh i have i don't know about yourself but i've already partaken in one thanksgiving feast and um, I'm typically, you know, I like I weigh myself fairly regularly, and I'm about 185, 186 on a Monday morning when I wake up, and that was 189, and that was after only one Thanksgiving feast. So I'm kind of afraid to see what next Monday is going to bring after two more are added to the mix. Yeah, you're gonna need to get back on your bike, bud. <laughs> I guess we should start riding more and stop eating, or maybe just yeah. just uh, ride dirt bikes and have fun and stop complaining about it, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, dude, well. 
One of the things that was interesting is that, you know, I, I've heard your voicemails. I've heard you call in a couple of times to the Pop Mex show. I've, I, they've read out a couple of your tweets. I love how involved you are with the show. Um, and, and uh, you know, and it's to the level that you want to be, which is great. But what what is it? So I, I love your questions because you, you're very industry sided, right? You've been doing this for a very long time in different aspects of the industry. But what is it about the pulp mixer that you like that kind of like want that creates the need for you or the desire, not the need, the desire for you to, you know, try to help them create commentary? Um, you know, I, I really I, I listen to a ton because I'm driving in my car all day long, every day. I put about a 150 miles a day in my truck, actually. And uh, so I listen to a ton of different podcasts. And uh, that one, I feel compelled to give a, a little bit more of from the amateur side. So from my racing all my life and uh, the my dealership experience and 10 years at Kawasaki and running the Kawasaki Team Green program, I just kind of feel compelled to uh, to voice my opinion here and there about some things that they're doing on there. Steve doesn't seem to uh, dig amateur racing very much, so he doesn't talk about it very much. So I just I just uh, like to give my opinion every once in a while about what's going on or what what you know what they're talking about. Yeah, holy crap! I feel like that could be a whole tangent we could probably go down if we wanted to. I'm sure that you have a lot of opinions on where we're at now, right, versus where we were when you were working with Kawasaki and Team Green? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a, uh, a huge difference in amateur racing from then till now. And um, not all is a positive thing, I don't believe, in, in my own opinion. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, today is a, a different time, a different life. And, you know, I, I see what's going on in amateur racing from a a visual from my history and my past as an amateur racer, as an ex-team green rider, as a trying to go to the nationals and trying to do supercross kind of guy. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of experience I've had in the past that I just, I, I get concerned about what's what the future brings, actually, to be honest with you. Well, before, I think we're, def we're definitely going to have to bring that up. But if you have to let me go because we wind up talking too long, you just let me know and cut me off. But let's let's bring that back. I loved how you said, you know, when you you were racing for Team Green and you were an amateur and trying to make it to the nationals, like, where did this dirt bike bug, this motorcycle, you know, maniacal sport that we have in our blood now, where did that start for you? How did it all begin? It's the strangest thing. Uh, nobody in my family had a dirt bike or a motorcycle. No, none of my neighbors. Nothing. Zero. There was no exposure to motorcycles whatsoever. And even as early as kindergarten, I used to put as my hobby, like on, I have a, uh, a book with all my little scorecards from kindergarten. Right. And my hobby, even back then, it said motorcycles. Wow. Now, it wasn't until I was 14 years old, I had earned enough money. My family wouldn't buy me anything. So when I was 14 years old, I shoveled snow and delivered papers and everything and bought myself a little Rupp 80. And um, I lived in town in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I used to push my bike all the way down to the railroad tracks, get on the railroad tracks, ride 12 miles out of town to get to an area that had some trails on it just to ride. And that's how it all started. But nobody really knows how the 
the desire to have a motorcycle ever even started with me. It's just, you know, I must have saw something on TV or something. I don't know. Yeah, because considering that no one in your family um, or around you was into it, the fact that you're five years old writing that down in kindergarten, that's like, it had to have been subliminal almost to that point. You know, it's kind of like you saw it somewhere and it just was like, that's my thing. Yep. And I have been ate up with it and I'm 54 years old today and I have never not worked in the motorcycle industry my entire life. Oh my gosh, that's even crazier. Yeah, I started at 14 years old at a dealership, um, working for one of the coolest guys in the industry right now, and he taught me everything that I ever wanted to know, bought a dealership from him, um, he's helping me with Team Green rides, with Team Green jobs, um, John Ayers is, is the guy's name, and he's kind of the man behind the whole Outdoor National series. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, you know, he taught me so much. And he also, at the same time, was teaching me how to ride. I was a novice rider. And I went to a bunch of his schools. We started riding together every day. He was training for the six days. He had already done the national thing. And uh, so I started doing a lot of outdoor um, motocross training with him. But then also uh, woods training. We did, I mean, we would ride every day after work. And... Um, you know, and at one point in our lives, we got to the point where I came out of a corner in the pro class behind him and had to make the decision of whether or not I was going to pass him or not. <laughs> and it was a hard thing to do because he was like my mentor, my guy forever. And I knew that the day that I went by him was not going to be a good day for him, you know, because of how we had grown up together. Right. And, but one day I did and, you know, he kind of, you know slowed down on racing and pretty much that was kind of the end of his racing you know it was right about that same time man and and uh everything going on with john Ayers, obviously that's not texas right if i remember correctly you moved to texas for uh all the oak hill stuff when we'll get into that in a little bit later so where where is all this happening for you where are you from originally uh beaver falls pennsylvania north okay. of pittsburgh yep nice man so we and- got to ride tons of woods with trees everywhere we would leave we worked at uh a dealership, we would leave on a freeway. We would leave out of the back of the dealership, cross the freeway, double jump this big set of double railroad tracks, get on the railroad tracks, go up about 10 miles, and then cut off into the woods. And we had a 50-mile loop that we would ride. And we would ride it almost every day. I mean, literally every day. And then there were some strip mines on the loop that had moto tracks. If we wanted to go moto, we would just drive there and unload and go there. Wow. Through that all, I was very good friends with George Quay at Pro Action also, who's in Beer Falls. Um, he actually taught me um, in, I don't even remember this, but I guess in in a very, very young, kind of probably around kindergarten age in church. He was my church teacher, I guess. I don't even right. remember. But uh, he would bring in Ricky Johnson and Danny McGrew Chandler and all these riders. And as I became the local pro guy, I got to help those guys in not only sometimes I would help them with their bikes because I was also the, the kind of the go-to technician. I, uh, I had to lace up a bunch of straight pull spoke wheels for Danny Magoo in 81 when he came back for the um, GP in Ohio. Yeah. And um, nobody had ever seen those Suzuki straight pull spokes and I had already done a bunch of them. So I laced his wheels up for him and, uh, uh, to uh, maybe one year later, Johnson came. Ricky Johnson came in when he was still kind of that bad boy guy that was, you know, really starting to shake up the world. Yeah. But not 
not a full factory rider. And uh, he, we went riding together, and then we went and hung out, and I took him to all the hot spots where all the chicks were, you know, and, of course, he was he was a big hit there. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and we um, – and uh, there was a couple other riders through the, the whole Team Tam time that came into town. Donnie Cantaloupe came in one time, and I had this hidden practice track that – George uh, came up and brought Donnie up, and they were doing frame testing for Honda up there. So I got kind of plugged into the industry a little bit from John Ayers and George Quay and those guys, but I still was just a kid in Pennsylvania, you know? Yeah. And when I look back at my life and all the different things that I've done, I was listening to your podcast today of um, Sutherland, and he was just saying it's just amazing how the just the little – times that you meet somebody how so much later in your life you look back and you can see how influential that point was and that time was and how that really shapes you and and drives you within the industry it makes a big difference in your life too so yeah you know, kind of how i ended up as a team green rider and, and also as a team green uh employee multiple times oh so. my gosh uh, one thing that was that, that's been interesting to me now that I've started to kind of like talk to gentlemen like yourself who just have so much history in the sport um, is is when they talk about those first bikes and you said that you shoveled the snow right you're 14 years old and you're buying this bike like what bike is that like what what was the first motorcycle that you purchased I have it in a shed out here behind me not what? the exact bike I was about I, to say I was I, like oh my I, gosh you have the exact no, bike but okay no. the same model I went, I went and found one it's a Rupp RM80. Mm. And it's a RUP, R-U-P-P is the name of the brand. Okay. And it was very much like a Yamaha DT80, kind of a not so fast, not not a YZ, you know? Right. <laughs> and uh, and that was the first bike. The second bike I bought was a 77 RM100. I bought it leftover in 78. Um, went to my very first race, fell in the very first corner of the very first moto, dislocated my elbow, broke my elbow, and was done for like six months. And my mother was like, all right, we're done with this. Uh, let's move on to basketball or something. And You're like, <laughs> I no, ma'am. <laughs> I was out there in the garage with one arm, you know, pulling the engine, painting a frame, getting it ready to sell so I could get a 125. You're like, so. no, I fell because it didn't have enough power, mom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I got, my, got myself a cool 125 and, and, you know, went on from there and just worked my way through the, you know, from the C class to the B class. Once I hit a 250, my speed came fast. I was, I was instantly a, a front runner in the pro class just by getting a 250. I went from basically a mid-pack 125B rider motocross to a top five for sure. And, uh, and what year do you think we're talking here? And what bikes were these 250s you're talking about? That would have been around 81. Okay. Yeah. And those are Suzuki's. I had Suzuki's all my life until I had a Team Green ride. And I only did, I did Kawasaki's in 85. I was a team green rider and, um, Mike Jones and I, Mad Mike Jones and I were good friends and he rode out of the same shop, which was John Ayers' shop, by the way. Um, and a shop that I ended up, my dad and I ended up buying in Pennsylvania. That's even and, crazier. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so, and Mike was a 125C rider that John also spotted just at the race and was just watching him ride one day. We were at, uh, a racetrack in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And uh, he was like, Martin, you gotta come over here and check out this guy. And we went over and we watched him and he was just out of control, but pinning it everywhere. And so we went over and we saw him. He lived in Butler, PA, which was just down the road, not about 
20 minutes down the road. And so we told him to come up to the shop. We came up to the shop. We gave him a KX125, put our little stickers on. You didn't do graphics back then. You just did stickers. Right. Put our stickers on it, gave him a jersey, and he was part of the team. And, and that's how Mike Jones got started, actually. And uh, through the years, it's it's a really – I mean, this, this could go on forever. But through the years, John Ayers, he sold me that shop. Then he moved on, bought another shop. Then he bought Keystone Motocross. Then he bought uh, Gear Racewear from California, who was a clothing, you know, a, a, like a, a fly racing kind of place. You okay, know, they made yeah. jerseys and pants and everything. And uh, really innovative materials, too. Very stretchy, very soft, really nice stuff. Um, and so when he bought that company, I started to also start helping him with that company a little bit. So I also was the race team guy. Like, I built all the jerseys and did all the, you know, all the race team stuff for the riders. The riders would call me that were sponsored by the, by the team and, and, you know, get all the, the stuff for the weekends. Willie Surratt and those kind of guys all rode for us. And um, so I did a lot of that. And through that all, Mike and I started also becoming pros. And we ended up getting a Team Tam box van back when Team Tam was huge. They had, I think, eight box vans at all the nationals and stuff. Um, and we actually wore Team Tam gear, which nobody wore Team Tam gear except for the pro team. So you guys looked... So we were the only two kind of amateurs that had that stuff, you yeah, know? Yeah, you guys Traveled looked, to Florida. looked top-notch. Yeah. Traveled to Florida, lived in Florida all winter for the mini, mini Olympics, all the way through all the um, winter series, you know, and that was back in the day when Bob Hanna and JoJo Keller and, you know, in Florida there was already... Kenny Keelan and Jeff Frizz and all these guys were super fast. So going down there and riding a pro class in sand in their backyard with Bob Hanna, by the way, that, <laughs> by the way, he went faster, the rougher it got, um, was just a huge uh, eye awakening kind of thing for me that maybe I might want to figure out how I'm going to make a living in my life other than racing motorcycles. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we just covered so many facets that we could probably keep going and and and, and yeah, walk on it's... down. Where does I, I because you know we're kind of a little bit to a degree more off road than moto, which is great. But obviously the the history and the stories are all there. Where does where do you where did you kind of like get to moto? Right, your pinnacle, if you will, your peak, and then when did that transition to? you know, kind of like a little bit more off-road because I know you also rode in the Blackwater 100. Like, did that just something like, I'm going to go do that even though you're only a moto guy? Or did you already kind of have like a little bit more like, I want to go do some off-road races in you? Well, John Ayers was a guy that was my mentor and he rode the six days and got gold medals and also rode every outdoor national that there was. So he was already kind of somebody that was like, you could say like a specialist or not a specialist. Like he just, he loved to ride motorcycles, loved to race and just did it all. I swear I've never in my life seen somebody that has better throttle control than that guy. Ever. <laughs> it's so, definitely not going to be me. We know that much. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's very, uh, he was very much an inspiration on how my riding went. So yeah, I would show up at GNCCs. Uh, back when GNCCs were hundred milers, I rode every one of them, but I also rode high points national and I rode Binghamton's national. And so I didn't really, I didn't really classify myself as a, a motocrosser or an off-road because I was a pro, pro, pro 
off-road motorcycle or a pro motorcycle racer in both categories. Yeah, you time. were just pro motorcycle racer, period, yeah. right? I mean, it wasn't yeah. a, a differentiation. And I was, you know, I, I broke my femur in uh, 86 um, while leading one of the, what is now the GNCCs. Um, and there was, you know, Kevin Hines and Johnny Martin and all these guys were there and I was leading the thing, you know, so, um, so there's a lot of that that kind of makes me also watch what's going on in today's world where, you know, uh, John Ayers and I, we would go to a hair scramble and the local fast guy beyond John that was just dominant everywhere we went was Eddie Lojack. And his uncle Joe would show up, or his brother, or whatever he is. I think he's an uncle. Um, they would show up everywhere we showed up because they were the, you know, they were they were always looking for competition. Right. And I can remember one time we pulled into this hair scramble, snowing like you couldn't even believe. You couldn't see ten feet in front of you. And we're sitting inside the truck, and I'm looking at John. I said, "We're not really going to ride today." Are we? <laughs> he's like, "Get your big boy pants." <laughs> yeah, he says, uh, "Well, we're not leaving until they leave." And so we sat there and we sat there and it got closer to the time to go to the line and neither one of us would leave. Neither one of us wanted to be the first one. So the four of us raced and that's it. <laughs> it ran a race with four of us. It was the craziest thing. And it was, you know, and in Pennsylvania, we would ride every weekend. It didn't matter whether it's snow or not. We would just go deeper into the woods where the leaves were so um, insulation, you know, causing to keep the ground from freezing so getting from the the dealership into the deep woods was tough but once we got into the woods and we got into where the leaves were so thick that the ground didn't freeze we would ride all day long and the snow wasn't really deep inside the woods because the trees kind of held all the snow right up. yeah you know but the, some of the creeks were partially frozen so it was tough to cross creeks i mean it was it was a tough deal but again just making riders that are a lot different than today's riders and these kids would go to the, the training facilities and just ride moto the whole time. I watch them when their bike gets caught on the side of a, a bull berm in a supercross as a pro, and they can't even get their bike up. You right. know, and it's like, I used to pull my bike when it was up to the handlebars stuck in quicksand and get my bike out. I had that technique, you know. But these guys today, just they just don't have that experience and don't get to do that and you know and partially because the land's not open either we used to literally ride 50 miles and never have to cross a fence well that was one of the things i was going to ask you about is because like when i came to texas and maybe when you came to texas uh you know you i kind of was like awesome i'm gonna have so many places to ride like there's so much land in texas and it's just the opposite like there it is like it feels like it is 110 percent private land um, yeah. And, you know, where it sounds like, and I have no idea what it is in the Northeast now, it sounds like everybody's losing land all the time to whatever group is trying to close whatever. But, you know, in, in Texas specifically, it's like, holy crap, like, you would think that they would have, like, all this awesome land for us to ride on. And unless you work with a rancher or, you know, find a way to get some kind of public land open, it's kind of kind of crappy around here. So, yeah, it's, it's nuts hey. how little amount of ability we have to go do a buttload of single track and not touch the same thing twice every time john and i we see each other we always just do we kind of end up back on those sunday afternoon you know leaving j and j cycle was the name of the place leaving that building and just taking off up through the fields and just taking off through the woods and riding a 50 mile loop with five or ten other guys 
and never having a single property owner ever mad at us. Never, nothing. Just it was just awesome. And yeah. to go back and get to ride those trails, and it, there really wasn't even really trails. I mean, we didn't ride it enough to really even beat down trails. We just knew where to go. But <laughs> yeah. we would always end up at the same river crossing or creek crossing or the same uphill. But getting from one kind of item to the next, we would just go wherever we wanted to. And uh, those days are gone. It's just the land is not open like that anymore. Um, yeah, quick tangent on that. Obviously, with Kiefer, you know, and, and him doing all the work that he's done. And I, I speak to this because I know you listen to Pulp. Um, for uh-huh. those that don't know, Kirsch Kiefer has done a lot of testing with Ulta and helped them get to where they're at. Um, and he's continuing to do that as well. Um, do you see that bike and those bikes, right, electric motorcycles, opening doors for us that have been closed in the past or that are closing currently? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I see, you know, you can put a BMX track in Fort Worth, downtown Fort Worth. Well, you can put a little arena cross track in downtown Fort Worth too if it's electric. You know, all you got to do is keep the dust down. I went to uh, to Austria to the KTM the dealer show in 2012. And um, they have an electric track there where the people, the public can actually come and rent an electric bike and go out and ride the, ride the little moto track. And it, it had a bunch of little tabletops. It wasn't really like a, a super gnarly moto track, but it was a very, you know, forgiving track. And every day there was 10 people out there, 20 people out there riding these electric bikes. And all you could hear is chain slap. You couldn't hear anything else. <laughs> that, that has to be weird. It is weird. And, um, and so, so the bottom line is, as I'm sitting there watching that in 2012, I, I got back on the bus one day, and I'm riding back to my hotel, and I'm sitting with one of the guys from Austria, one of the ATM guys, and I'm like, bring those things to the U.S. If there's ever a country that needs those, it's the U.S. And, um, you know, finally, just in the last, what, three months? Right, exactly. On that. And, um, and I think that's in a little bit of a response to the – the positive press that Alta's getting and the steam and the and the momentum that Alta's getting. So I think they're basically trying to kind of maybe cut that off a little bit and get a little bit of steam and momentum going on their stuff. But um yeah, I think I think the electric whole thing is awesome. And I, I just I I'm just blown away with the technology, how good it is, and can't wait to see where it goes in the next five or ten years. Yeah, every single conversation I've had with anybody about the Alta, up up until three months ago, what I was telling them is I was like, just watch. You know, KTM is putting marketing and a little bit of branding and money behind this electric free ride, right? But I was like, yeah. I promise you, there is a 250F frame that that engine fits in somewhere, and we just haven't seen it yet. Oh, yeah. And, and they're just waiting to pull that kind of a trigger. And then what happened? We saw the Alta, like you, like you just said, in the past year, the amount of press those guys have gotten and the response. Because apparently, I have not ridden one. Anytime somebody ride one, they come off with a shit-eating grin. And they're like, if I had 15 grand, I'd be buying one. Like, that's kind of how riders come away from those things. And I was like, and it, so whatever KTM had hidden away that they weren't going to put out for a certain amount of time, they were like, guys, the time may not be now, but the time is now, and we're just going to have to do it. And they came out with the, you know, their electric 250F. I don't, I can't even remember now what they call it because, yeah, Alta in my mind has already won, um, which yeah. is unfortunate for KTM. But they're there, and they did it. And the way that uh, Kiefer talks about it, you know, they listened to the riders, which very few people besides Eric Pernard actually seem to do. 
So they're making a bike that people want to ride. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, you know, if I had 10 acres, I would have one for sure and have a corner track on it. If I had 50 acres, maybe I wouldn't worry about it so much because the noise isn't that big of a deal. But, you know, again, how many people have 50 acres, you know? <laughs> right. So, so the, the bottom line is, is that that thing just opens up so much potential for, you know, people to have something cool to ride. And, you know, the big thing that's going to happen in the next five years is, Batteries are going to get half the weight that they are right now, so that thing's even going to become lighter than a 250F, and it's going to last, you know, six hours or something. So you could go ride a hair scramble or uh, an off-road race or something like that. So it's not—I mean, it's close, but it's not where it's going to be. It's—it's it's definitely going to keep going, and um, that's what the guy from KTM said. Was the biggest problem is is that the t- the battery technology is changing so fast that they don't—they're scared to put one out. And then, you know, tell people that six months from now, for 3500 bucks, you can buy another battery that's going to have twice as much mileage and twice as much power or something. You know, so they're very, they were very cautious about waiting until they had maybe a little bit of a plateau on battery technology. Right. But Well, that idea- right there tells me that that's, that officially puts in my mind that KTM is no longer niche. Right, like yeah. because when yeah. you're niche or a startup, you don't worry about that. You yeah. want to create the next new best technology, and you want to always say, "Hey, awesome people that support our product, we just made your product that you purchased from us already better by this." You know, and it's like we're always working to make your products better, which KTM every year felt like they were doing. But now, if they're going to kind of like play that card, it's kind of like, well. You know, they're more worried about the repercussions of new technology to their existing, you know, clients, if you will, versus, you know, somebody like Alta, who's a startup. And they're like, if we don't have an innovation every six months, we're not making our investors happy. Yeah, they have, Alta really has nothing to lose. You know, I mean, they have a huge investment into this whole thing, but their market share and their reputation really hasn't even started yet or is just barely starting. And, uh, you know, KTM obviously is kicking butt on top of the world as far as market share goes. And <laughs> yeah. And, um, so, you know, it's just a matter of time until we see all that stuff, um, you know, do a full circle where, you know, most of us are riding electric bikes. And I, and I think that day will come. Oh, I, yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's swing it all the way back around before electric bikes ever happened and we still had events like the blackwater 100 and you were at that <laughs> event right like we just 180 this conversation um back when chicks were showing you know their their boobies at events oh. and told people were totally drunk at mud holes um you know what was the blackwater 100 like for you you know it was i wrote it as a amateur and as a pro i wrote it in like 81 i would imagine i built a an RM250 with a PE250 engine in it. And I rode some six-day qualifiers with it and and um, did some off-road racing with it and had, you know, just kind of a cool off-road bike. And I rode that bike there. And as a matter of fact, the one little funny story on that race was I had a friend of mine doing gas stops for me. You know, of course, I didn't have quick fills and anything. It was twist the gas cap up. Right. <laughs> Try <laughs> not know. to pour it on your crotch. And and then take the, the big steel army can and pick it up and dump it in. And, you know, so anyway, so the guy doesn't get my gas cap tight. I'm blazing down the trail. And, you know, the Blackwater 100, it is, it's something completely different than anything you ever did. 
you'll you'll get on a pipeline or a power line and you'll go a hundred mile an hour for five miles and then you'll turn into this rocky kind of two track kind of ATV trail and then you'll go across a swamp that's like three miles long and it's literally a swamp and basically Dave Big Dave will get up at the riders meeting and he'll tell everybody say all right you guys you're gonna see these clumps of grass out there and you know they're kind of like a I don't know. He had some name for them or what they were. And uh, don't worry about it. They're all soft. You can hit any one of them. Well, you know, I'm going across this swamp third gear pin just to keep my bike moving. <coughs> and I, I hit one of those things. Over the bars I go. Fanny packs on my back. And I landed on my back and knocked the wind out of me. And I was cussing him so bad that day. <laughs> you can't hit them all, Dave. Yeah. But the, but the weird part is you're going across this swamp. And you're trying to go as fast as you can to keep your bike up on top of this marshy stuff but then every once in a while there's like a drop off with a creek that's five feet down 10 feet across and then there's a bank on the other side so you got to kind of just keep it pinned and just try to jump all those things oh my gosh (laughs) the middle of the swamp and literally the swamp the the racetrack there was no no ribbon like it didn't matter where you went You, you could go half mile to the right or half mile to the left it was the same stuff yeah, it's, no, it's not 25 feet. It's uh, no. get yourself to the next arrow, maybe. Big Dave said, I don't care about that. Just go, get to the other side, you know? And uh, so we, you know, it was just crazy, crazy, crazy. And then there's moon rocks. And then you get to the Highway 93 River Crossing. Um, the jump forward to 86, I was on Husqvarna. And Terry Cunningham and Mark Hyde and Eddie Lojack and all these kind I was a, a amateur support guy kind of on a Husky. And that was the year that I went from in 85, I was a team green guy, kind of all moto in 86. I kind of switched a hundred percent towards off-road and, um, I had a 400 XC and I'm down there at Blackwater and I'm riding a pro class. And I tried to, um, I was going across highway 93 river crossing, you know, and the, the things like up over the air box, you know, deep in water. Right. But then you have to climb this bank. that's just all slimy, you know, it's straight up and down, I don't know, 15 feet up. And Terry Cunningham was there on a kind of a prototype works bike. It was a, a four, I don't know, four something auto, but it was an auto bike. Hmm. And I was following him through there and he fell down. His bike was laying in the rut. And I was already committed, and I just wheelied right over his bike, got all kinds of traction on his bike, and just flew over the top and jumped and landed and took off like I knew what I was doing. Hell yeah. yeah. But back to the 81 race, when my gas cap falls off, you know, back in those days, they would put a little thing, they would tie this deal on your handlebars, and they would put little checkpoints all over the place, and you would have to come through and get a little hole punch stamped on your little piece of thin plastic that they put on your handlebar right and uh, i come around the corner i at this point i knew that my gas cap was off because you know what happens when your gas cap comes off comes off your, your um, crotch burns a lot <clears throat> yeah yeah you're just burning up and so anyway i come around the corner and carrie joe coombs was sitting in the middle of this muddy corner all by herself and back in those days i was what 17 18 years old and she was about the same age and she was pretty hot, and I always had the hot, you know, the always was like, man, she was so hot. Here I come around the corner, there she is all by herself, and I pull up, and I'm like, man, I had to figure out some way, because I don't have a gas cap. But the problem was, these are 25-mile laps. Yeah, you got a lot of, lot of ride. 
So I got a lot of riding to do. And you, you could burn up a whole gas tank in 25 miles in that kind of riding. And so I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to keep enough gas in my bike to get back without it filling up with water, you know, everything. Because there's just water flying everywhere because it's raining, whatever. So she had this little plastic cup with a Coke in it. And I said, any chance I can have your cup? And it was full, you know. She goes, sure. And she dumps her Coke out. She hands it to me. And it was a wedge-shaped. And I tried to, like, push it down in my gas tank. As soon as I'd start my bike up, it would vibrate and fall out. Right. So then I hit it harder, and it broke and went all in my gas tank. So I rode the rest of that 25 miles with my left hand over top of my gas cap. <laughs> rode one-handed the whole way, pretty much. Uh. Because I was so worried about dirt getting in there. Then oh, I yeah. come in, and you have to come through town to get through the, you know, the end of the lap. And I come into town, and right off the bat, I see a trailer sitting on the side right in front of this old, old, old house. And there's a dude up there that had to be 100 years old, rocking in his rocking chair, watching the motorcycles, you know. And I pull up, and I say, hey. And it was an RM125 or something. I said, hey, any chance I can borrow that gas cap to the end of the race? And this guy, he's like, well, I got to check with my, my grandson and see if he is all right with that. <laughs> and he gets up, and it's like, I mean, it seemed like it was 10 minutes for him just to get out of the chair and get to the door. I reached up, grabbed the gas cap, put it on my bike, took off. And at the end of the race, I brought it back. And I said, man, I, I'm really sorry to steal your gas cap, but I just didn't have time. I'm sorry. <laughs> it it's, was uh, really, really burning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the Blackwater 100. <laughs> Everything happens at the Blackwater. Yeah, yeah it's and, true. Uh, it sounds like it. So I stole stole a gas cap and uh, finished my race, but uh, didn't didn't do that well. But but it was all good. That's okay. You got to <laughs> talk to Carrie Joe. Yeah. Anytime you get to race a race that the Coombses are involved with, um, you know, Big Dave was so awesome to, to hang out with. And, um, you know, he I broke my femur, actually. He rode my dad double on a 250 CR about 12 miles out into the woods to where I was laying with my femur to scrape me up and put me in the back of an ATV and get me out of there, you know. Goodness. And, um, and, then, and then I'm in the... Uh, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia Hospital, because I happened to be in West Virginia when I broke my femur at their race. And he and Davey both came and they visited me. And Davey brought a bunch of pictures from the race that he took of me. You know, so it's just a, they were just really cool. You know, it's, it was a uh, it was a good time. That's awesome. So it sounds like the Blackwater 100 and all the off road that you did made you into the man you are today. And we're extremely appreciative yep. for all of that because <laughs> you're a great dude. But where does so and you did a lot of amateur racing with Team Green, but where where does your, um, you, you know, I guess your, what's the right word? Your, your your professional life with Team Green start, you know, without you being a racer. When does yeah. that? How does all that kind of come into play? And I mean, because we know that you worked with so many of our our industry's greats. Um, yeah. But, but when did all that kind of like come to fruition for you with Team Green in Kawasaki? So in 1995. I was running, I had already had bought John Ayers' motorcycle shop up in Grove City, Pennsylvania, moved it to Mercer, Pennsylvania, and we were a Suzuki Kawasaki dealer. Um, and, and what kind of transpired there was my dad was really the owner. I was just 19, 20 years old and didn't have any way to really do anything. And my dad and I kind of separated and got sideways. And so he just quit coming around. I couldn't pay the bills, really. And so I just closed the place down. This is a big Suzuki Kawasaki shop. <laughs> so 
I closed the place down and I go back to work for John again. And I was the print shop manager and we were um, pioneering a new technology, John and I, and he had started and he called me up and he said, I need you over here. And so we were running, I was the print shop, print shop manager for gear racewear and we were building JT, Cinesalo, Yoko, uh, Moose, Gear Racewear. We were doing all the event t-shirts for all the outdoor nationals. I mean, we were printing a lot of stuff, seven days a week, yeah. 25 But we were also developing a technology called water-based printing, which nobody had ever done before. And so <clears throat> we had to develop the, the machines to do it. We had to develop the dryers to dry the pieces. We had to develop the entire process. So we were able, we were the, the first company to really be able to print an entire whole sleeve and an entire whole front, back, collar, everything, and then sew it all together and create a jersey that wasn't just a, you know, like the back in the day, a Yamaha jersey was a yellow long sleeve t-shirt with a Yamaha logo put on the front. Right. You know, well, this was a full jersey that the red, white, and blue sleeve went into the red, white, and blue front and down into the back and you know, all that stuff matched up. So we were able to continue the printing through the all di the different panels of the shirts. And so as I'm doing that, I hear about a Team Green position available that was actually, um, I think it was Jose that was leaving. I can't remember. But somebody, whoever was running the off-road side of Team Green was leaving. And me thinking, hey, I ride off-road. And I also used to be a Team Green rider, so that, that job should be mine. And so Makes sense. Uh, yeah. And so I was born and raised in a town right up the street from where Ron Heben was born. And Ron Heben was the motocross supervisor, and the off-road supervisor was leaving. So I call Ron Heben, and I know his brother a lot, and I knew of Ron at the time, but didn't know him real close. And so I just started talking to him on the phone and everything, and he's like, yeah you don't know nothing about going to Mexico. Come on, Martin. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's literally how he put it. It's like, what do you know about going to Mexico? Because that's what they did out there. Yeah. And I didn't really put two and two together. I was kind of thinking that I ride GNCCs. GNCCs are off-road, so I'm an off-road guy. You know? Yeah, for them, it was all high des and desert. Yeah, it was, it was best of the desert and Baja. And, you know, that was the main focus at the time. And so anyway, so that job didn't happen. But he says, I do need a technician for the off-road side. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, and I said, okay, cool, I'll do that. Well, at the time, I was playing drums in an '80s hair band and was growing my hair out. Please, please tell me that there are pictures you can send me for that. Uh, no, I damn it! <laughs> this is before cameras. Because this fact. would be really good to have with the episode. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I, there is probably one picture I can find with not long hair, but kind of long hair. As long as you're wearing uh, 80s, 80s uh, hair metal tights, then... No, uh... <laughs> <I've been on. laughs> He's like, I burned all of those. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm playing drums in a hair band, and I'm growing my hair out. So I talked Slicer, who is Ron Heben. I talked him and Mark Johnson into hiring me at Team Green without ever coming out for an interview. And for 10 years, I worked there, and I was in charge of hiring people, and... I just, as I went through the process of hiring every person I ever was involved with, I was like, how in the world did I ever get those guys to hire me from Pennsylvania, sight unseen? Right. So the day that they said, okay, you're hired, I cut my hair, I sold my house, 
I sold my drums. I sold everything. And I drove to California with my uh, fiance at the time. And, uh, but the one thing that happened there during that whole thing that I thought it was all gone was they were trying to hire me to get there in time to go to the Baja 500 in 95. In 95, the Baja 500 was the race that Danny Hamill got killed. Oh, my. <coughs> so right at the last second, they decided we were getting too close to the Baja 500. I wasn't going to be knowledgeable about anything. I was going to just be getting there. And they said, you know what, wait till after the race. Well, then I find out that he got killed. And I also hear rumors that, you know, Kawasaki's never off-road racing again and all this stuff. So I'm thinking that my opportunity to get to go do the coolest thing in the whole world just went out the window. Right. And, you know, in my mind, being a kid in Pennsylvania, the one thing that I thought that my my goal and my trajectory would be is I'd go work for Team Green for a few years and then slide over to the racing department and become a mechanic for one of the, the pro guys, you know. And um, pretty quickly I realized I didn't want anything to do with that. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah. it's, it's a tougher and, life than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah, it's, and, and, and you know, we worked harder at Team Green, to be honest with you. But the security of knowing you have a job week after week, year after year, is much higher as a Team Green technician than with the, the racing thing because oh, you're just you got a contract or something like that. Yeah, yeah you're a contract guy, and your dude gets injured, you're done. You know, so you know, it just it just pretty quickly I kind of lost the whole. Um, the whole luster of that. And there's a little bit of a story I can tell you on that too at some point. But so anyway, so <coughs> uh, July or so, they finally called me and they said, yeah, come on out. We're going to, we're still going to do it. So I went out there and I was a team green technician, an off-road technician. And I built, I, I, I shouldn't say I built a team of us right. built <laughs> because they weren't going to let me just fresh from Pennsylvania build a race bike. But the, we went to the Baja 1000 that year. That was the last race that Team Green raced. Um, and so I built the bikes for that, somewhat. I uh, built the bikes for the Best of the Desert. And then 11 months into it, I find out that the people next door, tech services, are hourly. They don't travel hardly at all. And they make about 20 grand a year more. Wow. And so, <laughs> hello, Ray's. <laughs> yeah. So, so I ended up telling my buddy Ron, sorry, but I'm moving next door. And he understood. And I moved next door. And so, for two years, I was the Kawasaki green bike specialist for tech services. So, I broke in every bike, I prepped every bike, I did every magazine comparison, shootout, everything that had to do with media. I did all that stuff. And so I got to ride a lot, actually, with breaking all these bikes in. I also went to lunch almost every day with Bruce Sternstrom and Jeremy Albrecht and all the guys from the racing department. Brett Leaf, the fork guy, was one of my best friends. And so I got to go get my kind of pro fix every day at lunch because I was like the only guy that went with them to lunch that wasn't part of their team. Right. Uh, and I also had kind of free reign to walk right in there into their secure area where R&D and racing were. Um for whatever reason. Um, so, so that was, a, that was a cool thing. And then about two years into doing the media thing, Ron comes over and he says, Hey, I'm moving. Mark Johnson's leaving. I'm moving up to the main, uh, the, the, the overall manager of team green. And, uh, are you interested in coming back to be the motocross supervisor? And at the time, Cole Gress was also there. 
who would have um, died to have that job also. And, and so we both applied for it and went through the whole process. And I ended up getting the job um, for whatever reason. And I became the motocross supervisor and was the motocross supervisor for the, until I quit. Um, and Cole moved on and did the Suzuki motocross supervisor within months. So we wow. ended up becoming a very uh, rival couple of people. I mean, we were cordial to each other. Right. But the rivalry was very high because he knew most of the team green riders. And in that contract season, which was pretty much on us right away, he was after the team green riders big time. And oh, so to pull him away, to pull him away and start his big monopoly over there. Like he was going to create the next new biggest thing, you know? And so we, um, we, for years, he and I were, you know, kind of battling at every race that we ever went to. And he had his uh, approach to, um, his team. And I had a completely different approach to our team and my approach um, is definitely not what Team Green is doing today. Um, I was more of a marketing-focused guy and was more of a guy that was hiring a lot of riders. I had 75 riders a year. Um, Which so, is a lot of riders. Yes. Because <laughs> like on top of that, you guys helped and did work for other people that weren't officially sponsored. Is that correct, too? Like That was another big, big part of my whole thing was – you know, back in 85, when I was a team green rider, I went to uh, Melbourne, Ohio for my regional for Loretta Lens. I won two out of three motos and beat um, Dag Boyson for the overall to go to Loretta Lens and was, in my mind, number one qualifier for Loretta Lens in my mind because I beat the best of the best, really. Heads right. up. Heads up. And at <clears throat> at that time, I was having problems with the front brakes on my bike. In 85, they had terrible front brakes. So I had to bleed my brakes every single time I rode. And so my bike stayed under the Team Green truck, and I just went back, got a drink, got cleaned up, came back to the Team Green truck, and Jeff Chambers would have my bike ready to go. I'd get on it, go to the line, and race it, come back, and park it right back here with the brakes needing blood again. And um, so my kind of focus as the Team Green manager, or the, the motocross supervisor is really my technical title, was to make sure that there wasn't a soul that left that racetrack on any brand that needed help and didn't get it, you know? And that also is something I don't think happens quite as much anymore. Um, partially because of the four strokes. There, there, there definitely was a transition from, you know, there was, um, there was two instances. One was in, uh, at Mosher at the GNC final, and one was in Mammoth that we had somebody blow a crank on a 125 and needed it done ASAP. And Jeff Chambers and myself and one guy pulling parts both times had that bike from a blown-up bike coming under the tent to running in 45 minutes and had a new crank in it. Yeah, that's not going to happen with a four-stroke. <clears throat> no. And and that so that's part of the, the kind of the downside to the four-strokes and, and for Team Green to be able to really – truly help people. It's really hard because, you know, the technology just isn't there anymore, but there's, there's, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that I'm not going to get into that I think are weird on the way they're doing stuff. But, yeah. um, well, um, through all the awesome 
I mean, I can only imagine. Yeah, it's like we. I'm sure we could do like a whole another hour of just the team green stories. But give us a this uh, the, the Bubba most Stewart stories. Yeah, I mean, be. like the the <laughs> the best synopsis you can of working with. Holy crap! The guys like Jeremy McGrath, uh, you know, Ricky Carmichael, uh, and James Stewart. I mean, just to name three of the big names that obviously you work yeah. with. So I got there just as Carmichael was leaving from pro. So McGrath was before that. Carmichael was leaving. Stewart was 11 or 12 years old. Um, Villapoto was riding Yamahas. And Cian Cirillo hadn't probably even been born yet. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, so, he was a thought process. Yeah. And so through the years, I dealt with Stewart all the way through. He was the one guy that from the day I started all the way through pro was there. Um, Andrew Short, Trey Kennard, all the way through until he went Honda in his amateurs. Um, um, you know... Ryan Sipes, Pooh Sipes, you know, there was just, there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that all went through our program. And after I left, I would sit and watch a Supercross. And literally, if you took all the Chad Reeds and, you know, all the European guys that were here and the few Suzuki Honda guys, like Barca never rode for Team Green. Davey Millsaps never rode for Team Green. Um, uh, Nico Izzy never rode for Team Green. You know, there's a few guys that didn't ever ride for Team Green in my years, but I used to be able to watch a Supercross 125 and 250. Other than Europeans and those couple guys, every single person I've dealt with in amateurs and had them under contract. Yeah, that's that's pretty every, damn impressive to say. I mean, to have a program like that. Both classes. <laughs> yeah. And I'm talking about the main event. I'm talking the top 20 guys. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's damn impressive. <laughs> that's a hat hanging thing right there. You know, so that was cool. I was, I was, you know, that was a very cool thing. But you know, through those years, um, you know, Villapoto, you know, th- that guy right there, he was so determined. And there was a rider named Dennis Jonan, which a lot of people at this point may not even remember. But Dennis Jonan and, and Ryan used to get it, like get together. If they were, if one was in 20th, the other one was in 21st. If one was in second, the other one was in third. It didn't matter where they were. They were always together, and the dads were fighting, and Villapoto was on a Yamaha, and Yamaha themselves were never there. So Dan used to come up, and Dan's about a foot shorter than I am. He used to come up to me and just screaming at me about my Dennis Jonan guy, you know? And <clears throat> and this is Ryan's dad, Dan. Right. And then one day we're at Loretta Lynn's, and I'm out there in the middle of the field watching, and I turned to walk down, and as I'm walking down, he stops me, and he says, hey, we want to ride for you. And I'm like, really? And I was one of those guys that, and it was kind of an unwritten thing between Mike Guerra and myself that your guys are your guys. I wanted to create my own superstars. I didn't want to. You, wanted, like, you, you didn't want to you poach know. people. Yeah. But if a guy comes to me or if one of my guys goes to Guerra, then it was free reign because obviously – if one of my guys is going out and snooping around, I'm not doing a good job. Right. Bottom line. Absolutely. So, so he's, he's, he's free, you know? Um, so, so the bottom line is Ryan came and we, uh, we did a deal with him about two years later. I signed C and Cirillo, um, as a 50 rider <laughs> that couldn't even ride a 65. Oh my ride. gosh. Two years oh. later, he was a 50 rider. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he, he was, was literally not born when you started at Team Green. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious and at this point, though. Insane, insane. That kid was on a fifty Cobra, but 
so I signed him, and we gave him a 65 that he rode, rode around at home, but he didn't really ride it in the first year at, at any of the big nationals because it was just too big, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. um, but so through those years, and, you know, and we had, I mean, just in Texas alone, DNS had, I think, 18 green riders, which included um, uh, Eduardo Rojas, um, a couple guys from South America. I mean, we had people all over the place. You're talking about Eric Pernard. Well, Christoph Purcell used to come over all the time and ride what was the U.S. Open back then, yeah. which is now the Monster Energy Cup. Well, Christoph Purcell would come and ride a mini bike, and well, he would get the bike from me, and they would pit with me at the races and everything. And then I also got the opportunity to take Stuart to Europe um, for the mini GP that they had over there. Yep. And um, we did that in 2001, maybe. And then in 2002 or three or something like that, I took Villapoto to Italy. <coughs> and we went over there and we beat Purcell with – it was uh, – I took Villapoto, Chisholm, Bradley Graham, and Matt Bonnie, I believe. And also over there for the U.S. was uh, Zach Osborne. And Zach's another one of those riders that never got the ride from me. And um, – but I, I, it's weird because – Ryan Dungey's another one, and Ryan Dungey I actually had a contract for, and his, I called his dad one morning, and I had to sign all of my guys first, which was a lot, to make sure I still had budget left over to do new guys. Right. And, and as I would get towards the end, I would start calling these other guys. Well, I called his dad, Troy, and I said, hey, you know, I got a, a deal for you guys, and he's like, man, I just, last night, just signed with Suzuki. And so... Fast forward, you know, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years or something like that. Ryan's riding for KTM. I'm a KTM dealer. He's at the dealer show, and he comes walking up to me, and he's like, Craig Martin. I said, yeah. And I said, hey, man. And we said, we sat and talked, and, and he's, like, inviting me to go to dinner. And I said, I got a question for you. I said, your dad ever tell you that I had a Team Green ride for you, but it was too late? And he goes, yeah, I knew that. And wow. I said, well, make sure that you knew that. I actually did want you. It's not like, because I've had so many people over the years that honestly, I can't even remember their names, you know, and they come up to me and they say, yeah, I sent a contract or I sent a resume to you every year and you never signed me, you know? And I, I hear that all the time. And, um, but unfortunately, you know, there is a limit to everything. You can't do it. Oh, yeah. Well, the good thing, everything. Craig, you can, uh, you can rest easy. I never sent you a contract. Yeah, well, there um, so you go. You, ne you never had to turn but me down. So, so I never enough. did. I, I never, never had to turn you down. Yeah, easy I did, enough. <laughs> I did work on your buddy Brian Story's bike though, and built him a Honda 125 all, in the middle of the night. Yes, this is the 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 yep. desert, the best in the desert story. Best of the desert. Yep. Oh my gosh! Yeah, because what was it on the? He, his partner he blew seized, it up, right? Yeah, like, they seized their bike up, like in the little test day practice thing that you do on the day before, and. The mother of the rider, I, I don't even remember who it was, drove all the way to Las Vegas to get a piston and turn around and drive all the way back. And when she got back, it was like 1130 at night. And um, Mike from FMF and myself, he stayed out with me. We had our box fans kind of backed up to each other with the lights shining on this Honda, sitting there waiting for a piston to throw the thing back together. Got them back together and they won the race. So Wow. And I've got I've got some cool stories about the Baja 1000 and things that I did too, um, to keep people rolling at the Baja 1000 too. Oh my uh, gosh! So you're saying we're going to do this again? 
<laughs> yeah, I've got the. Uh, can you can before. you buy enough Corona and I, I can <laughs> I can uh, maybe what we should do is uh maybe I should uh, either a come to you or b we should meet up at a yeah. at a at a dirt bike event in the near future and then we can kind of continue continue the crazy. last week. I know, and it's it's nuts, and I hate the fact that sometimes, as as people as racers, right, as we do, like regardless of if we're a C rider or if we're a pro, and and right now technically neither of us are pros, and so we're okay with that. We understand that. <laughs> um, you just kind of get. A lot in, than I am, but that's what's okay. that? You're a lot closer than I am. Ah, stop it. So, it, it's one of those things that you just. Wherever you're at in your race, you can get into your groove. And for me, it's a mental thing, you know what I mean? It just, as it is for everybody. So it sucks the fact that like you just kind of – you don't get too sociable because I have, if you will, if you watch any of the web shows or any of that stuff from the past or listen to kind of stuff, I have the gift <laughs> of gab and I can talk oh, yeah. way too much. And so my problem now is that I've realized when I want to kind of try to stay focused – at a race, once the race starts, I kind of try to stay away from people unless I know I'm filming for the video, right? Like it's a lot of people think that I don't think through a lot of my actions, but actually I do more than probably a lot of people realize. <laughs> but it, it sucks though because you kind of get into that groove of like, you know what? I gotta, I gotta mentally focus. What did I screw up yeah, there? Not- Am I hungry? Do I need to charge the camera because I'm videoing for the YouTube stuff? Like all this kind of stuff going on, you know? Yeah, you're not the only one though. I, I race about once or twice a year, and I'm still as focused as I've ever been. And honestly, by the time that race was over with, I couldn't move. Like I could barely load my bike up. Was that not, so was it not a bitchin' race though? Oh man, that that I didn't ride the long course; I rode the short course. But that seventeen miles of slot car silt of ass kickery. Kick- let's be honest, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. killing my legs. And I, I got to the point where my legs were cramping; I couldn't even put them down. So I had to leave my feet on the pegs. But my butt was also getting so sore from sitting the whole time that I was just struggling. It was it was tough. So for those that don't know what we're talking about, uh, Craig and I both, you know, we, we live in Texas now and we're very close to each other. Uh, he, he, you know, he's been doing action motorsports and now he's with WPS and all that. So he's still in Texas, still kicking ass with dirt bikes. Um, and I live, we, we went to Kalisburg for the Bartow Ranch Enduro, which was the last race of the Blackjack Enduro series. You know, and everybody here, I was like, oh my gosh, there was a, ra- a race an hour, hour and a half from most of us here in the DFW area. We were all pushing to get people there and I, and I feel like we had a really good turnout i was i was excited to see that many racers there but this yeah. race go to our youtube channel if you haven't checked it out and i did a commentary video again from that event but man it the red river dirt riders they always put on a fantastic event like if they put on an event you have to go because you know it's one gonna be fun and two you're gonna come away going that was worth 60 dollars. like you just got your ass handed to you and you paid them to do it and it was worth it I've actually ended up at the doctor's three times trying to get my blood going in the right direction with all these weird levels of stuff like that. There's some, uh, there's some enzyme that has been released by my muscles so badly that it's got my blood all screwed up over that race. <laughs> so, oh, so, to, so the red river dirt rider sent you in the wrong direction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is yeah. not good. Well, yeah. I, I mean, it are you safe? Problem. Are, no, are we, do we need to be worried, yeah. Craig no. Martin? No, no, no okay. we're good. 
Now, it, literally, she said that there's there's uh, uh, marathon runners and all these people that put their muscles through extreme conditions. Well, me getting off the couch, being overweight, and super old. extreme, like total, yeah, like that's, Travis that's like, Pastrana extreme. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and I and I don't know how to ride an event and just ride it. I still, at whatever speed I am, which isn't much anymore, I'm still a hundred percent going for it the whole time. So my energy level is being ex- spoiled. It's just it's just not good. I love I need it. To get but, shape. Nah, but the thing is, it's like what's awesome is that, and and I didn't even know that your history right went as far back as it did you know, quote unquote, in the industry. And by in the industry, I just mean in motorcycles, in dirt bikes and and realizing Mm -hmm. that it's just crazy to me to talk to people like yourself that just have such an affliction, you know, for dirt bikes and for motorcycles from such a young age and find a way to create a life out of it. Um, and, And I'm just, because I feel like I wanted that, right? But I didn't have a clue how to do that coming out of New Orleans. And I, by no means ever had any ability right to ride a dirt bike well enough to ever be noticed by anybody to even potentially meet people um so it's just great to 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 continue to talk to people like yourself that have found a way to just be badasses in the industry and just make dirt bike cool for other people like myself to enjoy and yeah yeah, i appreciate the shit out of that because it's just awesome as i was 14 years old i was working as a part-time parts guy after school I would get on my 20-inch mountain or bicycle, little BMX bike, and I would ride about 15 miles uphill, literally. Like like the city I lived in was down in the valley by the river, and I would ride uphill the whole way to this dealership to go to work. And there's this one really long hill that I would grab a hold of the back corner of a semi and just let it pull me all the way to the top of the hill so that I could get to work faster. And that's how I started. I mean, I literally rode my bicycle you know, uphill 15 miles every day to go to work. You did not realize that that was going to be used in yeah. movies later on, like the yeah. movie Rad, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we used to do hopping cars, too, and we would actually, in the wintertime, you know, when a car, we would be hiding behind a parked car, car would stop at a red light or a stop sign in town, and we'd slide out behind it and grab a hold of the bumper and just slide in the snow as that car drove for miles and miles and miles. And then, you know, the kids that knew that we were on would start, you know, spinning the car around, doing donuts, everything, trying to knock us off. And um, we got to the point where we were bored in the summertime, and we would get those old wood, those really high clog shoes, you know, that had real thick wooden soles. Yeah. And we would do that in the summertime on pavement because that wood would slide on the pavement, and we would hop cars was what we called it. In the summertime, so that was just another. I cannot even thing. imagine how much skin you lost the second that went sideways. Yeah, yeah I actually tore my knee up, and and uh, and this is when I was racing uh, amateurs. I tore uh, tore my knee up and ended up losing a championship at a local fairground over over having a bad knee from hopping cars, which I never told my mother what really happened there. Yeah, you know, I got in a fight with a guy, oh. and the guy was a car, and. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I want to. I want to wrap this up really quick with uh, reading out your tweet that I responded to that you sent to Steve uh, to Pulp MX, and it was, I'm wondering why our moto guys have their own speech patterns. They start their interviews with, yeah, no, I mean, or yeah, no, for sure. Never hear non-moto peeps saying that. What does it mean? 
Uh, and, and I have some thoughts, but I kind of would like to get your thoughts behind this tweet and what you were trying to potentially pull out of um, people out there on the Internet with with that tweet. It's just uh, when Jeremy McGrath first became Jeremy McGrath, he started. And I, I want to say that he would say, I mean, a lot. Like he would be up there and be like, you know, I mean. And he would go into whatever he was going to say. And he always had a particular speech pattern. And I watched from him that speech pattern that he had, and I don't really remember exactly what it was, uh, feed out throughout the entire industry. Anybody doing interviews, they all started to sound like Jeremy McGrath. And today, I was listening to, uh, not today, yesterday actually, when I put the tweet out, I was listening to Steve's podcast from the uh, Paris race. And I listened to Cole Seeley and uh, I forget who the other rider was that did the same thing. And they're all still doing that kind of, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and it's like, it doesn't even make any sense what they're saying, but yet they all do it. And I just am curious as to why why they would hear another person say something that's, Grammatically incorrect. Not that I'm a great grammar person, but oh, we're the we're the best. Don't let anybody yeah, tell you different. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I just you know I just was just blown away with the fact that they all do it, every one of them, and it's the stupidest sound of the thing in the whole world. And when I was at Kawasaki, we actually had, and I'm sure they still have this, and I'm sure everyone still has this, but we had people that came in, and we would fly all our big athletes in. And myself at Team Green, I would bring my, you know, like Jeff Emig and Ricky Carmichael and James Stewart were there. But I would also bring in my top people, whether it was Bill Apoto or Jessica Patterson or whoever. I would bring my top amateurs that are going to probably end up on a PA system at some point mm-hmm. speaking to help them sound a little more educated. And, you know, the proper way to speak with a microphone and all that kind of stuff. And we would actually school them and teach them. But... Somehow this little phenomena has been going on and on and on and on and on, and it's still going on today. And it just blows me away that people don't ever say something to those guys about how they're speaking and what they're saying, and it makes no sense, you know. So I uh, uh, it, it very quickly <laughs> makes me think about Chad Reed. If you listen to him talk at at length either it be the pulp mx show when he's either called on or been on the show or mm-hmm. when he's been on the podium and has a very a, a little bit longer discussion if you will over just a quick answer to a question yeah it's the it's the ums yeah like he, he's an ummer if you and i don't i feel like that is one of those situations where there is just a true lack of understanding of knowing that speaking slow thinking about what you're going to say before you say it and don't i'm going to sound interesting here don't open your mouth until you're ready to say it mm-hmm. uh as i go uh right i mean there it is you know what I mean? like we just have a lack of true public speaking knowledge in that regard that, that's the way i feel about it yeah i, I have tried to Whenever I video somebody, I always tell them, 
if you've never been on video before, what's going to happen is you're going to speak faster than you think you're going to speak. And when you speak faster than you're, you're not going to have time to start to actually think through what you're going to say. So speak slower than you think you actually need to speak. And then what happens is we come up with the little, the fillers, right? And so it's learning to not have those fillers, which, you know, I guess I am not a professional in this, so I don't need to worry about it. Maybe, I don't know, but I I feel like there is that, that there is that place that you're noticing these things and it, it could bother some people, but I feel like maybe at the other time it doesn't. I mean, here's a great question. Do you watch NASCAR and doesn't happen in NASCAR? And, and this is no. an honest, I have absolutely no idea. No, it, I don't watch it very much, but the few times that I do see it, it doesn't happen. And again, you know, everyone wants to know and everyone's trying to figure out how to make our sport a bigger attraction to sponsors. And like I said, when I was at Kawasaki, we spent a considerable amount of money time, energy, flying athletes all over the country to get them out here to California or out there to California to give them this knowledge. And yet, you know, maybe it's not happening. Maybe the money's the object, uh, you you know, the problem. I don't know what's going on, but man, they all say the same thing every time. It's the exact same. um, Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. I, I, I just thought of something. So <clears throat> we could we could almost take this as a branding exercise, right? Like, so say yeah. say again, I'm pulling a, a name out of my hat because it's the first one that came, Blake Baggett, right? Like, say he said this a lot, and somehow it got back to him, and he's kind of like, you know what? I really want to change this about myself. So he goes to somebody that's going to help him do this. But if you look at it as a branding perspective, and not a I have a speech pattern issue. It could be something that could could be something that could could make the you know make these professionals in the sport more professional. I, again, I I liked your tweet because it was I think it's interesting and I notice it all the time, especially Chad Reed. Like crazily yeah. enough, especially Chad Reed. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. Well, and I just literally I just literally just said and um yeah I don't know. You, right? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, we all do it, but you know, the bottom line is you're, you're making some great points and, but what the writers I think need to focus on is that all they have, the only thing they have to do is to build a brand. That's all that the, the, if they don't build their own brand and if they don't perfect their own brand, then they're not going to be worth anything. Sponsors don't want them. Companies don't want them, you know, and it's not all about the speed on the racetrack. Obviously, that's a big part of it, but there's also a lot of people that have speed on the racetrack. And, you know, <clears throat> Ryan Dungey was winning everything until Ryan Dungey wasn't here anymore. There's still somebody winning every Sunday or right. every Saturday. Yep. And so so those riders have to, have to have a polished brand. And all my life, Every job that I've had has been about building a brand for that company in my eyes. Um, I was very focused about the brand at Kawasaki. I talked about it all the time. Um, I've talked about it to the point where I felt that people wanted to be a part of it because it was a cool brand. And my dealership, you know, we sold 300 dirt bikes a year for the last 
three or four years that we we before I sold it. And um, you don't sell 300 dirt bikes in Decatur, Texas, because there's a giant population of dirt bike riders in Wise County. You sell 300 dirt bikes in Decatur, Texas, because you're drawing from a big area. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 You got people, riders coming to you because they want to be coming to you. Because of the brand, you know, and my social media influence, my um, trailer that was at the races, helping riders every weekend, whatever it was, was all part of building the brand, making the brand look good. Like my graphics looked like a, a professional off-road team or a professional motocross team would have on their bikes that they didn't look stupid, you know? And so again, with these riders, they don't have anything to sell other than their own brand. And Blake Baggett and all these guys all have a different brand, but it's, it's still a brand and it's their brand and they need to work at that and they need to perfect that. And, you know, it's just a matter of, of, them wanting to spend a little time and energy and money to get a coach to help them with that. And that's just kind of my, my point. No, it's, it's very interesting how much this industry has grown. And I feel like maybe this industry has grown faster and I say industry, but the part that is on TV the most, right. You know, and that is supercross. And then underneath that motocross, um, mm -hmm. off-road, Sure, it might be the redheaded stepchild, but that's where all the weekend warriors are at, and I'm fine being part of that, that part of that charade, if you will. But maybe it's grown faster than we want to admit, to a degree where there's actually, even though people say there's not enough money and we need to have more outside sponsors, maybe there's more money so fast that people have not truly adapted to what we need to do to then potentially go beyond where we got quickly yeah. and it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I think yeah. that, uh, the other podcast I listen to a lot is uh, Daniel Blair's the main event. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. His take on it is that JGR gets a sponsor, whoever Toyota, whatever it's still the JGR team with Toyota as a sponsor. And where, if you look at Geico, Geico Honda, that team, and everyone refers to it as Geico Honda. They don't refer to it as Factory Connection, which is really what that team is. Right. You're because right. Biggie and Mike were smart enough to call that team what the sponsor is. So now the sponsor, the guy that makes the decision every year to sign that check and sign that contract, that guy feels like he's in ownership of a Supercross and Outdoor National team where Toyota is just a sponsor of JGR. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I am just on board with Daniel on the point that the motocross industry, the motorcycle industry um, <clears throat> tends to not see the big picture. <laughs> and that's why these companies are coming and going so fast. When I was at Kawasaki, we started out with nobody as a sponsor for the factory team. Uh, team Green had a bunch of little sponsors like the, the Renthals and the Cherbies and Dunlop and all of them all helped us, but we didn't have a big title sponsor. And about, I don't know, two or three years into it, we got the Chevy truck sponsor. And when Chevy trucks went away, you know, their take on it was that, well, it's because they basically come into a market. They saturate the market. They feel like they've done all pretty much all the exposure they can get out of it. And they move on to another market. Well, that's not true. 
Home Depot has been in NASCAR for as long as Home Depot has been alive. Right. Yeah, you're right. And so, so having that attitude that, well, they just come in and, you know, get their exposure and leave. That's not true. That's not right. And again, I think if the team and Kawasaki, I mean, to their, in my opinion, to their detriment, puts Monster Energy first. Like if you literally, if you look at a truck or a bike or anything and you were uneducated and I've proven this over and over and over again at the races with, with customers and stuff is, you know, honestly, those people think that that truck is a Monster Energy truck, not a Team Green truck or not a pro racing truck, you know? And so Kawasaki has done a good job with Monster Energy of keeping it number one. Like it's the Monster Energy Kawasaki team. Mm-hmm. It's not Kawasaki team sponsored by Monster Energy. And I think that's just where one of the reasons why we're always scrambling for sponsors in that level sport is that not enough people are really given the sponsor what they need, which is ownership of a team or, or at least the, the, the feeling of ownership of a team. Yeah. And again, Daniel Blair and I are point on point on that topic. Um, not everyone thinks that that's the way it should be. Um, I was I was involved in in conversations many times when I was at Kawasaki that you know sponsors are just kind of a pain because every race there's fifteen you know ticket requests there's um, you know VPs that want to come in and semi and look at this and look at that and you know you have to cater to the sponsors. <laughs> and the bottom line is, is that some of those sponsors, um, they need that to feel like they're part of it. And if you don't do it, then they aren't going to feel like they're a part of anything and they're going to move on. And I, I agree with, you know, Watson and all those guys are talking about like Dodge wasn't allowed to open up a door. I agree that sponsorship of a, of a team should not be regulated by the promoter at all. Chad Reed wants to put a 360 camera on the top of his helmet. Yeah, let him do it. GoPro, let him do it, man. Come on. That's getting more money into the sport. And don't, don't by the way, don't go and backdoor him and try to get that sponsor for the series either. Let that <laughs> go. Right. And I, and I agree. I'm kind of siding with Steve on all that side. So there's, there's, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed, and there's a lot of things that are great about our sport. And, um, you know, and the excitement in 2017 was just off the charts, and I loved it. Man, yeah, I had a great time watching dirt bikes this year, riding dirt bikes. I'm glad that my ankle is, is where it's at, and I can kind of get back to riding and not thinking about it hurting and just enjoying being back on a dirt bike. And I think that that's where a lot of us shine, right? Like, that's what we like to do. We like to ride dirt bikes. It's a motorcycle with two wheels and an engine, and it just vibrates us the right way, and it's an inner soul issue that we've figured out the only way we can make it happen is by just twisting the throttle. So, yes. yeah, I'm glad that people like yourself have done what you've done for the sport. I'm glad that I have had the opportunity to, you know, even though we've never had true interaction in this sport, I'm glad that we're tonight being able to commune over it a little bit. And in the future, I know that there will be more Coronas consumed (laughs) and there will be more discussions had over, over dirt bikes, over motorcycles, over the quote unquote, the industry and, and just how we can, how we can fix it. I feel like you and I over a couple Coronas could make some really, really good decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll just, we'll send a memo like, uh, and we'll just make sure that everybody gets it. Well, there's a lot of more, a lot more stories. 
you need to you need to go on a road trip with me. Drive oh, to the, go to uh, a GNCC with me. You'll you'll start hearing all kinds of stories. I like it. <laughs> well, um, my goal is to hit the first three national enduros next year. So if you want yeah. to find a way to a national enduro, we will be making those. I'll be going to Sumter and then Cajun Classic, which is obviously you know only six hours for us, so pretty close. Yeah. And then to Indiana for the first three, doing the 30A plus class, just racing, having a damn good time, and uh, putting out some more off-road content to our YouTube channel. Probably me hitting too many trees and commenting on it. (laughs) Yeah, ripping up too many jerseys. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, that'll happen. Hey, actually, speaking of, my fly racing jersey is pretty ripped. (laughs) So is mine. Yeah, I I know, that's all right. I pulled into one of the checks, and Brian Story was sitting there, and he looked at my arm and my my T-shirt underneath my jersey was shredded. And he goes, hey, I know where you can get one of those. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, here's my card. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, Mr. Craig Martin, thank you so thank much you. for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, keep the Coronas going, man. Just keep having fun on dirt bikes. Keep doing what you're doing. And thank you very much for what you've done to this sport. And thank you for your time this evening. Anytime, man. There's lots more stories. So I love yeah. it. Well, we will chat soon. And... After that, I guess everybody just enjoy a pintful of awesome, and we'll chat with everybody soon. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I think for a future conversation with Mr. Craig Martin is going to be a great conversation about amateur racing and the future of our sport. I would love for you guys to pass along your comments, email us, find us on Facebook, message us, leave comments on the post, however you found this. I'd love to know your thoughts on how you think racing and the dirt bike industry is going to prevail in the near future and in the long term. Uh, absolutely, if you enjoyed this, please consider you know finding a way to sponsor us. We're on Patreon, so you can find us at patreon.com slash seat time. We do have shirts for sale at fpmg.threadless.com, or you can use these banners on seattime.co slash support. Any of that would be fantastic if you feel the need. If not, Dude, just remember to always enjoy a pint full of awesome, and we'll see you on the internet.